Welcome to Dr. Green Speaks. What's up, family? You know who I be. It's the kid again, Dr. Green. Yeah, you heard it. Listen. Bridging the gap between scholars. Read more books than the curriculum profile. Doctors, athletes, and pop culture influencers. <laughs> Major show alert. Oh. Ladies and gentlemen, this is it. And now, Dr. Green Speaks. Bring them out. What's up, family? You know who I be. It's the kid again, Dr. Green. And today on Dr. Green Speaks, I have one of the world's leading financial scholars and social commentators. You've probably seen him on Good Morning America, MSNBC, BET, ESPN, too many media outlets to go through and mention all of them. But I'm not talking about just a regular pundit. I'm talking about a brother that has his PhD in finance from the Ohio State University. I'm talking about none other than my friend and brother, Dr. Boyce Watkins, the creator of the Black Wealth Bootcamp, the Black Business School, and a man who has built a media empire that's second to none. I just wanted to say, what's up, my dear brother? What's going on? Uh, thank you for having me. No, it's absolutely, absolutely a pleasure to have you on Dr. Green Speaks. I mean, you and I have been friends for years, and um, I, even though I've known you for many years, I am constantly amazed at not only the work you do, but the scope and reach of, of your platforms, um, a totally Black-owned black controlled platform that feeds our people. And, you know, I just wanted to ask you, like, how did you get the idea to, to, to get started? Like, what's the beginning? What, what inspires you? Or inspires um, you? Um, you know, the beginning, I think, is that uh, it's just being black in America and kind of seeing where there were some voids, right? That there were some areas where, um, you know, where problems weren't being solved. And it doesn't mean I'm the person who's solving all those problems. Right. Uh, but it, it's sort of one of those things where you see your teammates, you know, taking a, taking an L and you're kind of like, okay, how can I help the team win? You know? And, and, uh, and I figured, you know, I, I believe a PhD, I mean, my gosh, the, the, the horror that, you know, that I know I experienced in my doctoral program and ups and downs and tragedies and the hazing and, all this, you know, it, it kind of does um, give you a superpower, you know, and um, and so when you get a superpower, you become an intellectual superhero. Why wouldn't you be out trying to save the community and do what superheroes do? Um, I, I I don't I, I never felt comfortable being locked away in academia because I, I would look at real impact. You know, I, I don't care if you tell me I have an impact. I need to really see it. Right. So an impact doesn't just mean that you're hitting a lot of people. It means you're hitting the right people. And that you're hitting people that matter to you, and the people that matter to me were back in the hood and back in my community. It was not, you know, the people at these wine and cheese parties. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, this scholar's from Germany. This one's from Russia. Uh, that that meant nothing to me. It meant nothing to the people that um, you know for, that were where I came from. So, so let's talk about where you came from. Let's go right back to beginning. Born and raised. Mm. Um, born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, grew up. Really looking up to uh, Muhammad Ali. Uh, he's a he's actually a second cousin of mine by marriage, um, and so I grew up kind of hearing stories about Ali. You know his courage and and everything that made him great, and that really inspired me. Uh, you know, just kind of this idea of this guy from Louisville, my little town, who ran the same streets as me, 
literally going to the biggest places and running to the biggest, baddest people and um, <clears throat> and just dominating every situation that he went into. I just I was inspired by that. And um, and that 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 showed me the power of courage. You know, Ali was great because he had courage. He wasn't scared of nothing or nobody. Um, even when he was wrong, he wasn't scared no more or at, at all. And so, um, you know, I, I, I kind of started there with, with that in, in, in terms of a model of what it meant to be an impactful black person. Uh, you add that to say Malcolm X, the Harry Tubman's and the people, the great liberators throughout history that we admire. Uh, I always said, you know, I, I, w- I want to try to aim in that direction. Right. So um, so growing up, I, I didn't do very well in school. Schools are not my thing. Systems. I don't I never did well in systems because I was a misbehaved child. I was the kind of kid that just sort of ended up in trouble a lot in the principal's office a lot. And uh, and that was. um you know, my early indicator that uh, in my mind, it told me I wasn't that smart. Um, it told me that I wasn't um, really going to be that, that successful. And, uh, and and in hindsight, obviously, it, it reminds me of the failings of the public school system and how this disrupts so many of our um, our people that have the most potential. Um, I, I believe black people, black children should be educated by black people, by conscious black people. Um, that's, that's my two cents. That's what I believe. And so um, so through the years, you know, I um, you know, I, I, I was a knucklehead, you know, a lot, a lot of guys, I mean, a lot of people, when you get marginalized and you start to sort of feel almost criminalized by society, you start sometimes behaving like the outlaw. And so I was the guy who colored outside the lines you know, almost on purpose. You know, um, I, I didn't, you know, I, I was kind of in trouble all the time. You know, I had a baby when I was um, 18 years old and I wasn't a troublemaker though. I wasn't a bad person, a bad kid. Like I wasn't, I wasn't going to rob you. I wasn't on my way to prison. Uh, et cetera. But I, I wasn't a person who just fit into much of anything. You know, I, in my high school graduation, my mother got a phone call where they were basically telling her on her job that <laughs> they said, well, you know, Boyce won't be allowed to participate in the graduation ceremony because he didn't come to the graduation rehearsal. So I was like a rule breaker, you know, and uh, and I guess that played out pretty well, because later on in life, I started I would question everything. And so when I got to academia, I questioned academia. I was like, okay, why are we working so hard at this? Why is it? Why do you tell me that this is important when it doesn't seem that way? It actually seems like that's important. And, uh, and that just doesn't really work within a lot of systems. You know, uh, people create their systems to, in their own image, to pursue the goals that they find to be important. And, uh, and really, if you want to fit in that system, you got to go along and play along. And, and I think it's a very difficult, dangerous place for a black man to be where you're trying to fit in and play along with a white supremacist system where another man literally is dominating you. Um, it's not, it's, it's not empowering. It's not, um, fulfilling. And I, I believe it can actually create mental illness. And, uh, and I see a lot of scholars go through that. I see a lot of our scholar types, <laughs> you know, like, you know, like going to sleep every night with a, with a liquor bottle in the hand and, you know, sitting around, you know, for hours talking to other black intellectuals about microaggressions and how, you know, let, let me, let me tell you what these white people are doing to me on my job, you know? And, uh, and I'm, I just kind of think, um, I'm, I'm more of an advocate of a, um, I don't know. Maybe it's because my daddy's a soldier. My daddy's a soldier and uh, soldiers figure out what the mission is and soldiers will fight and they will go pursue the mission and go in and uh, complete the objective and solve the problem. And so for me, it was more like <clears throat> I'm only going to sit around and complain with you for so long before I start to feel like it's a fruitless activity. You know, it's some sort of uh, almost mental masturbation, if you will, or a type of, uh, you know, like like just this ex- like a ritual. 
like almost like, you know, prayer or just like, okay, let's get together today and feel sad again about what white people have done to us again. <laughs> you know, like, like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that with you maybe about three times. And then after that, I'm going to say, okay, how are we going to, how are we going to go get them? <laughs> like, right. like what, what's our counterattack? Right. So, there you go. That's a great, no, that's, that's great insight. Thank you for sharing. So tell, tell me how you, because that, that's interesting. Cause that's a very similar beginning of, you know, it's my beginning. Like I was a knucklehead. I was in trouble. I was always fighting, you know, uh, you know, I was coloring outside the line. So can you tell me how you get from not being someone that's considered a scholar to getting your PhD at a top tier institution in finance, mind you. You know what that was? Um, <clears throat> um, the thing that that really worked and drove worked for me and drove for me is, um, I, first of all, I play sports, and and the sports. My love for sports was driven by my natural competitive instinct, you know. And then also you combine that with <clears throat> with uh, just natural work ethic, right? you know, um, and, and accountability. You, you grow up with a strong father who tells you if you want something, you fight for it. You got to work for it. So when I got to college um, and I had my daughter, my, well, my, her mother gave birth to her. I didn't, <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, and when her, you know, so I got this little, little baby and I'm sitting there thinking, <clears throat> what am I going to do now? You know, wh- which way is my life supposed to go? And I, I just, you know, got this in- inclination that education was a critical element to success and, and the ability to do what I really wanted to do, which was make money. So I <clears throat> got to college and <clears throat> and they're like, so what do you want to major in? And I'm like, oh, well, what's finance? They're like, well, finance is money. I said, okay, I'll major in that. I think if I study money and learn about money, somebody will pay me money to talk about money. So um, that's what I did. And, uh, and the other thing is, and I don't know where this part comes from. I, I just, you know, felt like if you're going to do it, do you know, do it to the best of your ability. And uh, if you want to make money, try to go out here and make the most. And that's to me, again, that's natural male competitive instinct. Uh, maybe some men have it more than others and some women have it more than others. But I guess I had a lot of it. So I got to college and I just sort of said, OK, if I figure out this school thing, then I can get what I want, which is money and opportunities. So uh, I approached school. I had never really studied before. So I approached school the way <clears throat> the way I approach sports. And uh, what I learned in sports is that if you want to win a championship, you got to practice harder than everybody else. You have to practice consistently. And so what uh, when I was sitting in the library trying to figure out, well, if I was if I'm a good student, how long how many hours a day does a good student study? So my logic was pretty basic. My logic was, <clears throat> well, I work at Taco Bell and I can work eight to ten hours a day. So. If I can work at Taco Bell for minimum wage, eight to ten hours a day, that I can study for five or six hours a day, and 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 that's the beauty of um, actually solving those problems in a vacuum, because I didn't realize that most college students don't study six hours a day <laughs> every day consistently. I didn't know that, you know. Yeah, yeah, but I thought I was like, oh well, that's easy then, because because I mean, think about that, right? Like you go to college and you and somebody says, oh, you should study four hours a day, and they're like, oh Lord, that's too much, Lord Jesus, what am I gonna do? And I'm like, but wait a minute. So you're about to come out here out of college with a C average, and that white man gonna have you working 10 hours a day, every day. 
for the rest of your life for a low wage <laughs> just so you can get out of student loan debt by the time you're 60 years old like you're gonna be a sharecropper son like you need to figure this out right so so that to me was like common sense right and i i guess i guess i don't know i guess common sense isn't so common but but that's what i did right so i'm sitting in the library again heavy imposter syndrome like really in my head i'm like i shouldn't be here i don't belong here this is for smart kids and uh studying six hours a day well i don't care i don't care you if you're dumber than elmer fudd if you go to college you study six hours a day you're gonna kill it so <laughs> suddenly i'm the number one black student on the entire campus Right. And and I'm loving this because I'm shaping my identity. You know, like the first time I was actually I had that feeling of being a winner and successful. You know, I growing up, I, I didn't really have um my father was a great man and a strong man, but he didn't spend a lot of time with me. So I and, and my biological dad never met them really, I met the man like three times or something. And, uh, <laughs> and so I didn't have anybody <clears throat> in instilling confidence in me as a kid. I wish I'd had that. If I'd had that, I probably would have done a lot of other things earlier. I had to kind of find myself on my own. But uh, but yeah, so this is my first time like feeling like, okay, this is cool. I like being the man. Okay, who the man is? Okay, who are you talking about? Every man likes being the man, you know? So I'm, I'm loving this, man. So I just grabbed onto it, never let go. And once you go down the rabbit hole and you start getting that little taste of success, you start going deeper and deeper and deeper. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, and so that leads into like, okay, well, if I go into finance, you know, who's making the most money? Where are the best opportunities? You know, and uh, also I, I realized I was good at this school thing and good at learning and all that. So I said, okay, Okay, maybe I'll be a professor. And, uh, and I met a mentor uh, named Tommy Whitler, Dr. Tommy Whitler at DePaul University. He's, he's still there. And, uh, and he was um, the only, only uh, at that time, the only black faculty member ever tenured in the history of the business school of the University of Kentucky. That's it. Like literally. And, um, you know, and, and, and the thing was that, you know, at this, this relationship with him, meeting this guy, when I met him, literally when I met him, he came out of his office and I was looking at him like, why are you in the professor's office? Like, what are you, you know, what are you doing? I really, oh, you must be the janitor. I, I swear I thought that because I'd never seen a black professor before. And uh, and that's when he told me that he was the professor. We became friends, man. We would meet and play basketball and all that. And uh, and then and then he, he he gave me a ride to lunch one day, and he had this like really cool shiny Porsche, and uh, and I mean pretty candy red man. And I'm like, wait a minute, you're a professor, bro? How do you, how do professors buy Porsches and have these big houses like you got? And he said, oh, no, business school professors do pretty well. And I said, well, how well do they do? He said, oh, you're in finance. He said, finance professors make the most money. I said, oh, OK. So yeah, that, that's literally what led me down that rabbit hole, man. And um, and then, you know, and then the, I guess I guess after that, the rest was history. I, I can tell you more if you want to know. But that 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 was those were literally the decision making steps that occurred to get me into academia. No, but that's that's incredible because it, you're speaking to one, the influence of having that male figure in your household and in your family yeah. and also another black man coming at another point in your life. So it seems like that there's a reoccurring theme of getting, you know, having these people speak into your life and help guide your life course trajectory. So I think that's I think that's just amazing. So so where's the jump? Right. Because, you know, you speak often about um, black intellectuals and black scholars being stuck on the the, the plantation, the, the, the academic plantation. What was it that caused you to go out to leave? What would have been considered, you know, a, a winning position? Right. So you have reached the top of the intellectual, you know, ladder. Right. You're in the upper echelon of, of, of the university systems, like you've made it. 
What makes this man then say, you know what? I'm not doing this. I can do better on my own because that's a unique jump because most people, you know, they get their PhDs. Well, well they get their bachelor's, master's, however they, they, you know, they climb that ladder. They get their PhD and then they're on that, you know, that rat race toward tenure. Right. Which is another, I guess, kind of validation mechanism, right? Because we do often suffer from that that imposter syndrome. Like I, I don't belong here. And any moment now, they're going to discover <laughs> that I, I've been smart. And I'm not that smart because I know a, a plethora of individuals that have shared that 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 they do it, but constantly they're sitting there saying, uh, you know, any second now they're going to know I'm not really that smart. You know, I know I experienced that myself. So what what allowed you to then? have the kind of confidence in yourself to say, look, I'm gonna go out on my own and build what now can can actually be considered as a media empire. Well, um, two thoughts come to mind based on what you said. Um, you know, one, one major thought is uh, that most people I know that are the best builders, most people I know that are the best revolutionaries, if you wanna call it that, right? And I guess, I would consider myself to be some sort of a, maybe an economic revolutionary. I'm, I'm a big believer in uh, black economics as a source of black power. Most revolutionaries don't grow up wanting to go to war. Uh, they want peace and they get called into battle. You know, like like you're living this regular life. You think about a movie like you're living this regular life, happy life. You kiss, you kiss your wife goodbye and go to work. And then one day somebody bombs the house and kills your whole family. And so suddenly your whole trajectory, your whole path has been changed and your whole mission has changed. Your whole, um, you know, purpose has shifted involuntarily. And and uh, and that's what happens with a lot of black folks where, you know, you, you go along and you're playing the game and you're doing what you think you're supposed to do to be successful. And I did that. You know, I, I was um, I was I was a very hardworking student. I was very dedicated to what I did. And then just things just happened that just kind of made me that kind of honestly pissed me off a little bit. It was just so unfair and just blatantly biased. And academia, unfortunately, as, as many wonderful people as I met in academia, there are also a bunch of arrogant pricks. I mean, just elitist, insane, ridiculous people that are, they're, they're right. You know, they're, they become racist, but not because they just hate you because you're black. It's just because they just have this like weird elitism that where they're just like, they, we hate everyone who's not, you know, in the elite class like us. And so by being black, you're by default kind of in that category. Uh, but but it doesn't matter if you're poor, if you or if you don't have a PhD, whatever, like we look down on pretty much everybody, including you, especially you people, right? Which which makes me think about like, for example, when Cornell West got into it with Lawrence Summers at Harvard, that was, uh, to me, that was elitism. It wasn't just it, like racism, because remember Summers went over and served with Obama, you know, because Obama was elite like him. But it's like this sort of thing where it's like, you know, you represent these dusty, dirty people that people like me don't associate with. So that's why your work is not important. Right. So so I, I didn't enjoy that very much. And, it, and it, it pissed me off and it didn't work very well. And I told you, I, I always call it colored outside the lines. So, um, you know, you, you poking at me, we're we going to fight, you know, like, you know, and, and it, you know, and, and like anybody, you know, you, you, you if you push me too hard and I get to the point where I'm ready to fight you to the death. Then yeah, you you might still win, but at that point, I don't care if you win or lose. At this point, it's all about me just making sure that I fight in a way that is honorable, and that's very dangerous. Like right? when you when you're dealing with because when, when, when I had my little battle with Syracuse, it, it was like 
I got into the point where I was pretty dangerous because I did have access to media and a big platform and all that. Even if they wanted to pretend like I didn't, they wanted to pretend like I was this little assistant professor who didn't matter. No, I was known all over the country. So if I decide I'm going to scream and holler at the top of my lungs and I don't care anymore if you blackball me, I don't care anymore if you let me go, then at that point, I'm probably still going to lose. I'm okay with losing, but you're going to lose a little bit too, right? <laughs> you know, so, so that, 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 so being called to battle was part of that process. Now, when you were talking about confidence, the imposter syndrome, kind of feeling like maybe you don't belong or you don't fit. Well, first of all, that's going to happen a lot with black people, because if you spend your whole life as a black man trying to pretend to be a white man, you're always going to know in an honest way that that you're not really who you are pretending to be. Right. Like if I'm if I'm pretend like if I'm LeBron James and I'm not playing like LeBron, I'm trying to play like Steph Curry, then he has a good reason to be insecure about that, because He's not Steph Curry. Steph Curry will always be better at being Steph Curry than LeBron James. So so a lot of self-confidence starts with self-love, right? That means really looking at who you are in the mirror and, and really loving yourself warts and all and saying, you know what? I got some parts of me that that are that make me into a bad, a, just a bad boy, right? But then I got some other areas that are not so great, but I'm going to work on that, right? But that's my business, not yours, right? So it's not your place to come and make me feel bad about my um, my vulnerabilities or or my weak areas. No, I'm not going to let you, you that, that's not your job. That's, it's my job. I got this, right? But either way, at the end of the day, I love me. And because I love me, I'm very confident in me, very proud of me. And I know that I'm kind of all I got. Like like this brain I have yeah. is the only brain I'm ever going to have. So, so, so sitting around wishing I was something different or better is just not beneficial when it comes time to really go to war and really go out there, you know, you, you get on the football field, you're the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. That's the team you got. You got to win a Super Bowl with the team you got period. So, 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 so what I'm, what I, what I would say is that I think in academia, what's really interesting is that because so many of us feel that imposter syndrome, people naturally take advantage of that insecurity, like an insecure person that's easily triggered by their insecurity is easy to exploit and manipulate and intimidate. Right. Like, 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 look, if you keep on getting out of line, I'm going to blow your cover or, or we know you, you, and we know that you're only here because we're allowing you to be here. Cause it's not like you're really good enough. Cause we both agree that you're not good enough. So don't get me, don't make me mad or, or I'm going to punish you. Right. And, and also I know that you're vulnerable. Right. Like, like, again, the, the way a pimp does a hoe, right. A pimp, a pimp can't, a pimp cannot pimp a woman or, or woman or man. Right. We don't make this gender specific, but a pimp can't pimp a person who has really strong self-confidence. Right. Pimps don't aim for, you know, the woman who's highly educated, who feels good about herself, who has a great, great set of parents, you know, who comes from a good family. Right. You know, who's got that master's degree. Right. He's not going to go after that. He's going to go after that, that vulnerable, scared, insecure woman who's struggling for money, you know, an inch away from starving to death. Right. And feed her a couple compliments and, and get her in line. And while he's, you know, this and all the kindness is usually backed up with the pimp hand. Like, you know, like you get out of line, I'm a pimp slap you, right? So so black people get pimped when we go into these spaces uh, because we we are uh, psychologically vulnerable. We don't really have that confidence in terms of believing in who we are. Because, again, we, we, we've, we've been falsely led to believe that getting closer to white people makes us better, right? So, so it's like we've put a premium on – we've allowed them to almost like print money in the sense that we've given them this sort of power to say that that being in your space is more valuable than being in my space. Right. Me getting a chance to fit in where you come from means more to me than me fitting into where I come from. You're not trying to get into my neighborhood. I'm trying to get into yours. So at that point, you're in the vulnerable position of being an un uninvited guest. 
you're playing every game on the uh, every game you play is an away game. You never get to play in the home field, right? So and if you know about anything about sports, if a team was forced to play every single game on the road, their winning percentage is going to be lower, right? Because nobody's cheering for you, right? Nobody's cheering for that black man or black woman who's really in that, and you know, surrounded by people who don't identify with them. And it, and it, it really, to some extent, I think it goes uh, deeper than just race, though. I, I don't think, I mean, don't get me wrong. Race certainly matters. We know this. But I think it's also a matter of saying, you know, who are you and do you love that person and where do you really belong? And are you OK being there? So so long story short, um, what drove me away from academia was, you know, I got called to battle and I'm like, man, this sucks. Like I played the game right. I did what y'all told me to do. I, I'm supposed to live happily ever after. It didn't work that way. And uh, and then uh, it, things just kind of escalated to the point where I was like, you know what? I don't need to be here anyway. Right. And I got a couple of things going. I, by the time I had a couple of things going on, I, the first book I wrote, you know, didn't do anything. You know, <laughs> nobody wanted me to come speak. I would go. I would literally go give all these free speeches and spend money going to get a chance to go speak. Right. You know, like like I wasn't making any money doing any of this stuff. And then a little money starts trickling in. And you're like, oh, OK, wait a minute. Wait, I made an extra three grand this month. That's cool. Right. I don't have to, you know, I have to wait for them to give me a raise. I can go make my own money. And and also when you start getting to that point where the pressure starts getting heavy uh, and really a, a, a critical um inflection point was when Bill O'Reilly decided to really go after me on the O'Reilly factor. Um, you know, I was sitting at home like seven o'clock at night and my sister calls me and she said, she said, Coco, Coco's my nickname. She said, Coco, they are talking about you like a dog on the O'Reilly factor. And what happened was uh, he had said something about Michelle Obama. He, he'd made a joke about lynching Michelle Obama. And um, and I was like, no, you don't do that. Like, you you can't say that about a black woman. Right. So I, I think I'd gone on CNN or whatever and was like, this is crazy. This guy's a racist. Blah, blah blah. So he just decided, I guess, some for some reason to just stick it to me. Right. Like, I'm going to get this guy fired. So the whole hour. Imagine this. It, at that time, the O'Reilly Factor was the number one show in America. So imagine for a whole hour on the number one show in America, they're talking about you. Like they're not inviting you in to defend yourself, right? They're talking about you, and they would have a they would have a segment and a guest, and they would say, "What do you think about this terrible black man?" And they would talk they would talk crap about me, and then they go to the next segment and they play another clip of me and be like, "What do you think about this terrible black?" You know, and so it was the talk of the whole campus, right? And, and of course, it was going to be a big deal. So so I get a call from the dean who's like, "The chancellor wants to meet with you or something, right?" Because the they ambush. They ambushed the chancellor. Fox News ambushed the chancellor on her way to work. So imagine, this is like, I, I'm an assistant professor now. So this is my boss's 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 boss. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and, so, and, and she's getting all these calls from these donors who gave millions of dollars who are like, I'm not giving any more money to this school if you keep supporting that racist. You're harboring this racist, right? Again, nobody, they didn't really know anything about me. They just know what Bill O'Reilly said about me, right? Which is crazy. And uh, and and here's what here's what happened, right? So basically it was like I was in this position where it's like, okay, I'm being told to apologize, right? Like, okay, apologize, smooth it over, it'll make it go away. And I was like, but I don't want to apologize because I didn't say anything wrong. Like he he made a joke about lynching a black woman. That that's not appropriate. Like that's I'm not the crazy one here. And and the the difference maker for me was economic freedom. You know, it was like, okay, if I get if I lose this job. Am I going to be able to pay my bills? Am I going to have a place to live? Am I going to be able to, you know, afford the basics? And when I realized I could do that, that gave me the courage to kind of stand up with them. Because I, I noticed a lot of scholars think just holding something like tenure over their head 
unfortunately causes them, the price you pay for that is so high. Like you're giving up all your freedom of speech and expression. Like you can't, you know, you're here, you are, you're brilliant. You got all these amazing things to say, these great observations that the world can benefit from. And you are scared to open your mouth because your boss has pretty much held this pimp hand over your, over your head saying, we're going to slap the hell out of you if you get out of line at all. And so um, at that point, you know, it was kind of at a point of no return. It was like, okay, do I sue them or or not? Because I had a case. The chancellor knew I had a case, actually. She's a pretty liberal white lady. And I think she understood where I was coming from. But it was like, unfortunately, she's surrounded by this administration that just really wasn't trying to get any of that. And uh, and so we, we had some back and forth and all that. And, uh, and so two things that I remember deciding was, one, I decided, you know what, you're not going to molest me in the dark, right? I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to literally uh, plant, you know, a strap a bomb around my body and walk into the building. And I'm going to blow my career up. I'm going to blow up my invitation. I already know, because think about this, right? I'm raising all this hell of Syracuse. What university in their right mind is going to hire me at that point? Nobody, right? Like, like, and then that's what it happened, right? I applied to a few positions and they're all excited because PhDs in finance were really rare. Black PhDs, PhDs period in finance are rare. Black PhDs in finance are almost non-existent. They're like pink unicorns. Like, like the year I got my PhD in finance, I was the only African-American on the planet to get the PhD that year, like in finance. There was nobody else. I looked around. I searched. I asked everybody. I, no. So so you would think, right, with this diversity talk, like, oh, well, we're looking for a diverse faculty and we're really looking for qualified black people. Right? That's, that's BS, right? Because, you know, I saw qualified black people come in, do a great interview, and then they would just tell them no because there was no accountability. Nobody was forcing them to explain why they didn't hire that person. They just chose not to. So I learned quickly that that was BS. But, uh, but also, you know, it really, if you think about this, though, right, it really helped me understand what diversity means. Diversity doesn't really mean that we really want people that are different from us. We don't really want real diversity. We want you to just do what we do and be like us. Just have a black face so that you can validate our white supremacy. Right. Wow. <laughs> so wow. you're, you're black. You become like the wow. black police officer who hangs out with the white police officers. You know, you go to the Irish pub after after work, like the, the rest of the white cops. And you but you beat up on black people like the white guys do. Right? So, so, so now we've got diversity but that's not real diversity real diversity is hard to it's hard to do um because real diversity really involves the sharing of power which i don't really know if that's something that people do naturally right so so as much as i can i can be mad at syracuse about what happened um i'm not really mad at them i kind of get it actually it's like okay that's your school you built that right you and the white boys got together and said let's build a university now 100 years later it's this amazing institution um and that's your space I, I, I don't know if I belong in that space. So so I, I walked away. Um, at the time, I had some animosity. But years later, I had no animosity at all. And, and I'll tell you why. I, am I talking too much? No, I, no, please. This is no, I, no, this is. Oh, OK, OK. Yeah, because you 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 got me going telling my story. So I'm doing the stream of consciousness in terms of how it, how it all went down. So so two decisions I made at that time was one, you're not going to molest me in the dark. I'm going to talk loud about it uh, because I need you to know how racist you are. And I'm going to do my part to make sure that that light is shined on that, it, it, you know, it, knowing full well that I'm not going to be the beneficiary of any progress that's made. I already know, like, like literally my um, I had this really great uh, department chair, uh, a white guy. What I mean, wonderful guy. I don't, I'm not going to say his name because, I, 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 you know, he's still there. I won't blow up his spot. But he said he literally explained to me he, when we went up for tenure, there were three of us, three black people that went up for tenure on campus that year. And he said between us, the truth is that. Those other two people would never have gotten tenure <clears throat> if it wasn't for the fact that they really needed to reject you. So those two got tenure. I didn't. 
right? And he said, the reason they got tenure is because they needed cover, racial cover to get rid of you. He said that because if you had not been there, if you, you know, then they wouldn't have gotten tenure. We rejected them outhand. Their their vetoes were not qualified for them to get tenure. So, you know, in a way it's like football, right? You know, the lineman clears the path, blocks for the running back who runs into the end zone, right? But, you know, so so that's kind of how it went down. But the thing was, um, I I decided you weren't going to molest me in the dark. And I'm glad I did that because the following year they hired a ton of black people, you know, just, just to prove that they weren't racist. Because I, every, every interview I did, I was like, look at their hiring record. Look at how many departments they have that where they've never hired a black person, never tenured a black person. Right. Just go look at the record. Like, you know, it's just because because what happened was the conversation got into this weird like it always does. Like like, well, well, they're saying that you're not qualified and that's why they didn't give you tenure. So is that true? So I said, no, rather than I learned this actually from playing. I'm a really good poker player, believe it or not. Poker is a great game of strategy, psychology and math. And I and I'm, I'm you know I've won tournaments with hundreds of people in right so poker was a really fascinating thing to me and one thing I learned about poker is this when you really want to win you don't let yourself get on the defensive you play offense you don't get yourself in a position see black folks make this mistake you put yourself in a position where you're always reacting to what they oh no I can't believe they did what they did right no in poker if you want to win you actually go on the offensive so that they're reacting to you. So you have the first mover advantage. Like, okay, what, what am I going to do now? What am I going to do now? You know, and, and they're kind of freaking out about that, right? So, so, so the thing was that in this whole situation, I decided, you know, I'm going to just go hard, go on the attack, and uh, and 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 so when you come to me and you say, well, well, we're from the such and such a journal, and they're they're saying that you're not qualified, and we just want to get, clear the air. And what do you think, Doctor Watkins? A lot of people would have spent a lot of time defending their qualifications, and I didn't do that. I said. Let's assume I'm not qualified. I'm going to go ahead and, and, and punt that ball. Let's assume that I am terrible. I don't deserve it. I am garbage and I should be fired. I said, now here's what I want you to do. Now I want you to go look at their hiring record. Look at the, the look at the data. And, and you tell me with a hiring record and a promotion record like that, is can that not be defined? Can that be defined as anything other than complete racism? When you haven't, promoted a black person in a department in a hundred years, you can't tell me that, that there's something wrong with me. No, there's something wrong with you. You are incapable and unwilling to evaluate qualified black people. That's what's wrong with you. And nobody's calling you on your BS because black folks, we spend so much time being defensive. Like I got to be perfect to prove it. No, no, no. I never made a mistake. No, white guys don't have to do that. White guys make mistakes all the time and still get opportunities, but somehow they got you walking on pins and needles worried that, that the little thing you did wrong again, it, it plays into your imposter syndrome, right? So you feel like you gotta be perfect in order to get opportunities Bro. that are provided to mediocre people all the time, right? So, so I wasn't gonna let them molest me in the dark. Second decision I made was I said I'm not gonna sue them because I don't want to spend 40 years in court. I read a story. What the, the thing that made my decision for that was actually the professor, actually who happened to be at the University of Kentucky where I went to undergrad. He was an English professor who uh, who earned tenure in 1976. And he didn't get it. And he took him to court and he literally he won the lawsuit. And it was 35 years later, right <laughs> before he died. Like literally he won the lawsuit like two years before he died. I said, no, I'm not going out like that. And so I just I just took off, man. And um, and it was hard. It was difficult. But I figured out something right I, to, to me. This was important for me. I said, 
okay, what is tenure anyway? Why why is everybody selling their soul for tenure? Like, you know, like like I'm gonna sell some WAP to get tenure. Like people are just like, you know, anything I'll give it, I'll give my firstborn child for tenure. So I was like, what is tenure anyway? Oh, okay, so tenure is pretty much job security. That's it, it's financial security. I mean, sure, there's some status that comes with that, but I think you can actually actually validate yourself. I think that validation, I get I get validation from my community, there's financial security. So I said, okay. So financial security, I can you can get that in a lot of ways, right? So I said, okay, so I can get financial security provided by my oppressor, by the way, um, you know, by getting this job for life. Or I said, or I could figure out how to go out here and make some money. If I go ahead and I figure out how to make a million dollars, that would make me pretty secure. And then I could do whatever the hell I want and I don't have to answer to anybody. So I said, which is harder? Figuring out how to get into these elitist academic journals, which I had no mentor. Like that was the thing. They just dropped, they literally low dropped us in the middle of this department with no support, no mentorship. There was no senior faculty member I could go talk to. And, and if you learn about academia, like Alicia, my fiance, she's a full professor of social work. A lot of her progress was driven by having a couple, having a black woman, one black woman in particular, who bulldozed through her tough situations, her tough spots, right? She'd be in the committee meetings and would say, no, you're not going to do that to her, right? You, you, That advocacy, right. having somebody block for you is really important. I, I had nobody, I had no, I was literally, the, I was Patrick Mahomes with the Super Bowl, you know, <laughs> offensive lineman, right? So you saw what happened to Patrick Mahomes, but he didn't have a blocker, right? So, yeah. so, uh, so anyway, <laughs> thinking about it, right? Super Bowl so, um, so yeah, so, so what I, what I, what I decided to do, man, was, I said, okay, I'm gonna go out here. I'm, I'm just gonna figure out how to go make some money. And I said, there are thousands and thousands of, of white people who make lots of money all the time. Uh, I could figure it out. So I just started studying entrepreneurship. As I would listen to podcasts on entrepreneurship every day, I was taking classes on entrepreneurship, talking to people I knew who knew how to make money. And and what happened was my confidence grew. Like, okay, first first you make your first two or three thousand. You're like, okay, I can make enough money on my own to survive. And then it goes to ten, then twenty, and then you're like, yo, wait a minute, this is I'm making more than I made in academia. I'm and good. so so you just go down the rabbit hole. So years later. I swear to God, when I tell you, I swear, I put it on everything that I am not angry at Syracuse at all. I, in fact, I want to send them a thank you card because if I had not been called to battle, I never would have found my purpose. So, uh, so I, I have no animosity toward them, awesome. but, but but I do, you know, but I do have a heart for those scholars that are still in that system uh, because we know it's a corrupt system. It's a bunch of BS. And so the, the, the thing is that it's really on black people to say, how do you build um, a, a better system? You know, how do you build something that's better for you? Thank you. Thank you. You know, that's that that's very insightful. I mean, because, you know, people look at where someone is today and they have no real concept or, or understanding of what it really took for you to get to this point. Like it's it, it for some people, it's like an overnight success. So so now understanding like there was a lot that you went through to get you to this point. Can you tell our audience a little bit about the many, many different projects as, as, as concisely as you can, you know, that you have? Because like I said, you have a media empire that reaches, I guess, millions of people. So can you tell us about like the different things that you have now that our audience members can enjoy um, a, a black owned media outlet, unfiltered, right? Uncut. Can you tell can you tell our, our, our listeners a little bit about your your conglomerate? Well, um, you know, I, I would say that the, the, the great meeting spot uh, for a lot of people is Dr. Boyce TV dot com. And uh, that's what we call the home for intelligent black people. 
and uh, we we promote um, unapologetic blackness and also critical thinking skill, um, uh, freedom of speech, uh, tolerance for ideas that are different from your own. Uh, I think that's really important, but that's a really that's really a f- reflection of my core values. You know, I and I could, one one of the great things I got from academia was the ability to really truly hear people that were different from you that were thinking different from you, and I really like that. You know, I, I like the idea of being challenged, you know, by people who have different ideas. And, and it makes me very sad that we live in a world where people don't do that. You know, everybody lives in a silo. And if I'm a Democrat, then all my ideas are perfect and your ideas are terrible because you voted for somebody different from me. I don't believe that, you know, so uh, that's a main gathering spot. Also the black business school has been something that's been really fun. Uh, we, we put together the black business school, like a church and uh, it's the black and basically, um, anybody can actually get started for free. We have free stuff, and then we have low-cost programs that allow you to learn from all different kinds of <clears throat> of, of, of of really smart black people from all different backgrounds, uh, millionaires, real estate moguls, um, you know, people that have built their own. Uh, our core values are that we believe black people should educate our own children, create our own jobs, and support black businesses. And the reason that's important is because uh, when you're letting other people educate your children, um, they're going. They're going to poison them. They're going to feed, fill them with propaganda. They're going to pump them full of whatever idea that they want them to, uh, to have. Um, and, and many of these educational systems built on white supremacy are not going to really teach black people uh, the things they need to know in order to be liberated. They're going to teach you how to fit into the system. So while we don't know if we're ever going to get reparations for slavery, we know we get preparations for slavery. They, they start giving you preparations for slavery when you're a kid, <clears throat> when you go into that public school that's teaching you to worship people like George Washington, you know, and slave masters. And then and then at that point, you you got media that's preparing you for slavery because a lot of the media is just terrible, especially the, some of the music, stuff like that. And then on top of that, you're being fed this uh, weird myth that says that your path, your best pathway to success is to go to a big white owned university, give them all of your family wealth and go deep in debt, so deep in debt that you can never repay it. Half of all black college graduates default on their student loans. They cannot pay the debt. The debt is crushing. Uh, they, they, the debt lasts them for the rest of their lives. They die in debt and uh, half of them do anyway. And and then also you're in that process, you're not being trained to necessarily liberate and build your community. You're trained to really go work for another white person. So then at that point, and again, this is not anti-white. This is just pro-truth. So you end up in the situation where you're like, look, mom, I made it. So now you live in the suburbs. You know, you you, you got this job with this company that's never that, that only has one black person in the department. And you feel like that's progress. Like, look, look, I've really done something for my community. But really, have you? Uh, you, you actually haven't. That your community is still in shambles like it was when you left it. Uh, your community needs institutions. It needs jobs. It needs people that can can create and build things. It needs wealth. Uh, the property values are de- declining because you want to go live in somebody else's neighborhood, right? So all these things that we're uh, taught, these preparations for slavery have to be challenged. So uh, we believe that black people should educate our own children uh, to prepare them to build the community, create our own jobs so we can hire our own so that we're not running around concerned about sort of microaggressions and mistreatment on the job. Well, you know, we should create those jobs and then uh, support black businesses. So those black businesses can turn around and, you know, and create the jobs that we need. So no, that's great. So, so what would you, what would you advise um, students, black students, um, Latino students, because in that, you know, obviously there is a value to education, right? There, there is a value to going to school, right? Um, what would you recommend for them that are in these um, at these universities? They're getting their degrees because um, a lot of them, like you said, are going to graduate. They're going to be in debt, and they're going to be working 
their way out of that debt for the rest of their lives. So I don't think you're saying everyone get out of school, right? And, 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 and don't get educated. So what would you advise? What would your advice be to those young black and brown students that are in at these universities that are going to get these degrees that may not be able to pay for them to live the kind of life that they hoped for? Okay, well, I, I think it's important to just make sure we, we know, right, that, that number one, going to school and getting educated are not always the same thing. Right. We know a lot of people who go to school, but they never get an education. <laughs> and then also, education isn't always the same as knowledge, right? So we know knowledge is essential. Education can be a pathway to getting knowledge, and knowledge can be a pathway, excuse me, and, and going to school can be a pathway to getting education, right? But th 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 that is not a natural automatic process. You have to think that through. So um, I, I believe there's a, a mathematical technique called dynamic optimization where you solve a problem by working from the end. You start at the end and you work your way backward. Like, where do you want to be? And then you work back to where you are so you know what your next step is, what your next move needs to be. So if, if you define the final destination to be something that we talk about in a lot of, you know, quite often, this thing called freedom. We talk about freedom a lot. What is freedom? Freedom is the ability to do what you want to do. Right. It, you know, on a daily basis, if I'm a free black man, I can get up and I can go where I want and do what I want, spend time with my kids, whatever. Right. Most of us aren't free because, you know, you say, well, what do you want to do today? Well, I would spend time with my kids, but I got to go to work. Right. Or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. So if the goal is freedom, then uh, then that means that your your knowledge and your education, your schooling, et cetera, should all be sort of pointed in the direction of freedom. So, so, you know, so like going to college and stuff like that, I'm, I'm not anti-college, you know, Alicia is a college professor still at, at her university and, and uh, our kids are all going to college, but we talk a lot about freedom. And that means that our conversations about knowledge and education might be a little bit different from what we, what we grew up with. Right. So uh, I'll talk to our 10 year old about her passion. Like, you know, what, I noticed you really like to dance. I noticed that you make TikTok videos and you do video editing. You know, there are people that do video editing as, as a profession. And then we talk about, uh, you know, business ownership. So for example, I had the honor, the opportunity to work with ice cube on some stuff and I had her meet ice cube because I said, you know, this guy, he makes content just like you. He makes his own movies just like you do. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, she doesn't know about the gangster rap, you know, he just knows the family movies. Right. But, but it was like, and, and, and of course it doesn't have to be ice cube. I mean, I know that, that was, that's a, a rare honor. Right. But, but it was like, but it's the thought process that, you know, that, that, that I want to focus on in that, in that it's like, okay, let's start with your passion and let's give you the freedom to pursue your passion. Uh, you know, when they talk about inalienable rights, they talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So if you focus on that last piece, the pursuit of happiness, what does that mean? That means happiness is like a destination and you need to pursue it. And in order to pursue it, you have to be free to pursue, right? And a lot of us are not free to pursue our happiness because we're locked down, hemmed up on some job that we're, do we're doing every day that really isn't reflective of who we really want to be. And it's we're doing it because we got to pay these student loans back. We're also doing it because we don't have any other options, right? Options is also connected with freedom uh, because, uh, you know, the more, which, which is also connected to skill. So the more skill I have, the more options I have. So, uh, so what I do with the kids is we, we'll talk about their passion and then what it means to have the freedom to pursue that passion. And while I'm in the background building capital, building a capital base, for the children so that when they get out, they're not hemmed up with the student loans and all that. We're, we're investing for them consistently. I'm also telling them like, look, if you really wanna be free, whatever training you get, whatever you major in in college, we're gonna make sure you know how to start a business so that in case you get tired of working for those 
the, 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 those bigots that, that you're, you know, that you're, that you're working for, you can, you can just walk away and be okay that night. Uh, we're going to talk about investing in the stock market because we want you to own assets because in America, in a capitalist society, the freest people in America tend to be the people that control and own capital. Uh, we're also going to talk about real estate and ownership so that you will own things at an early age, which will allow you to have the freedom to pursue your happiness, to pursue your passion. Right. So 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 what I would say is not so much to say that college is terrible. You shouldn't do it. It's like, yeah, college can be a piece of that, you know, but but you got you, you must supplement that. If you don't supplement it, then you're going to you're going to be stuck. It's, it's like literally playing basketball and you're learning one move. You can't you, right. you can never be a great player if you only have one move. You have to be able to dribble both hands and you'll be able to shoot layups, three point shots free throws have different aspects to your game so that when the defense decides to try to stop you and they stop one move, you got another move you can go to for many black folks. We got one move. That's the whole fill out an application and get a job move. And when they block that move, we're like, man, we can't win. No, learn, learn some other moves. <laughs> they they got one move to Hezzy. They up and, and they right. still yeah. laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pump fake. Pump fake is all right. That ain't gonna work. That, that's not. They're gonna, they're gonna cut you up. So, so this is something that that I that I um I have to say the first time I heard this was when you pointed it out, and I think it's a really important um point to share with our audience. Isn't it interesting that in and and of course I value education you know college is really important but isn't it interesting that we go through all of our formative years from kindergarten all the way through your bachelor's degree and you could learn absolutely nothing about money mhm yeah like that's the one thing that they're not going to cover you're going to american history you're going to get biology you're going to get political science but you will not learn about money well, you know what's interesting, man, is I, I, I thought about it, right? And, I, and and if you want to understand America, look at history and where things come from, why things were created in the first place. When I talk about preparations for slavery, uh, these preparations for slavery don't aren't just done for black people. You just happen to be at the bottom of, 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 of the food chain. But, you know, they, they do this to a lot of people, <laughs> right? Um, you live in a capitalist society right? and, 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 and in that society, you need things like you need lots of employees. You need lots of willing workers. You need you need men going to work. You need women going to work. Right. And uh, and so so um, I uh, uh, two two quick stories I'll, I'll share that kind of help me to understand this. One was um, I remember reading about how uh, the nephew of Sigmund Freud was uh, an executive with a company in New York that was trying to figure out how to get women to buy um, more cigarettes, how to get women to start smoking. So what uh, what Sigmund told him was he said the, the, the cigarette is can also be seen as a phallic symbol. And if you message it in the right way, you can convince women, uh, the women that are part of the women's lib movement, that taking the cigarette was like taking away the man's penis. And, and so they packaged the marketing in a certain way. And before you know it, all these women were smoking cigarettes as an act of defiance. Like, look at us. We're, we're taking away your, you know, we're, we're taking our power and by popping this, you know, cancer stick in our mouth. And um, and, and, and so so there are a lot of people that will use, you know, th those sorts of ideas and movements to pursue a more sinister objective. And, and there are even some who would argue that the whole idea of sort of shaming the women that maybe want to stay home with the kids or whatever was to get more women into the workforce. Because the more workers you have, the more wealth you have, the more the capitalists and industrialists can do well, because now they got more employees to choose from. Well, the public school system, 
uh, was designed to do the same thing. It does. It's not designed to prepare you to be a captain of industry. It's designed you to be a cog in the wheel of industry. Uh, universities. And uh, the second story that 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 I that I'll share that I that helped me understand why universities even exist is I remember when I was on Indiana University's campus and I was in this big beautiful building, and on the there was a sign that said donated by Eli Lilly, and I said why would Eli Lilly give millions of dollars to build a building on this campus? You know that's crazy to give away that much money, and I thought about it, I said oh that's right you, because they're now going to help them develop a program to train people that can come work for Eli Lilly once they graduate. So these systems are not designed to turn you into a millionaire and to help you own assets and all that. <clears throat> Historically, that's been for the elite. These systems are designed to prepare you to become a good worker. Uh, and so uh, so even HBCUs will teach you everything you need to know about how to manage a business, but they will never teach. They really don't put energy into teaching you how to start the business and run the business. Right. That's something you have to learn on your own. Fortunately, we live in an age where you can learn that on your own, but you have to be conscious, economically conscious enough to say, I'm going to go outside of that system in order to get what I really need in order to have a complete and empowered life. So, so basically, you, you for it's so basically, it's important for people that are getting an education the traditional way that it's absolutely positively supplemented with education that is also in line with their goals, their hopes, their dreams, and you know what what the end goal is. Right, like you said, a freedom, right, or financial freedom, economic freedom. So, just putting your head down and doing your homework and passing your exams and getting a grades is not all that needs to be done to arrive to a place like that you have. Yeah, yeah. You um, There's a saying that says that uh, that formal education will help you make a living and self-education will help you make a fortune. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that anybody who wants more than kind of the standard uh, compensation uh, for education should definitely pursue self-education. If you're Black, it's essential because a lot of education is built on uh, you know, cultural propaganda. And, uh, and, and, and so it's all sort of, edu- you're sort of giving your education in the eye of the beholder, you know, they, they, they decide what's going to be important, what your value system is going to be. And so you have to supplement that education. If you don't, um, it, it's not going to work out well for you. So, yeah. So one of the things that, that I, that I hope that we can establish just in the black community and among the, the, the advocates, the, the black intellectuals, the black business people, is this, you know, this coming together, this consolidation. Are there people that you, to this point, haven't worked with yet, but that you would like to, that that if you could, you know, if you're building an all-star team to take over the media in America, who would you have on your all-star team? <laughs> oh, man, that's a, that's a tough one. Let me kill you. <laughs> I think somebody with some capital, like, you know. <laughs> You know, like a Byron Allen, or what's the other guy's name that gave all the money to Morehouse? I forgot his name. Robert, Robert, is it Robert Smith? Yeah, I, 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 let's start. Let's start at the top. <laughs> let's go to money. Said, he said the uh, check writers. You start. Yeah, with the let's write a big check, man. That's that. <laughs> you know, um, uh, you know, I, I love Dr. Claude Anderson a lot. You know, because I, I think he's just such a leader in, um, in just giving us what we need, especially right now with this reparations conversation. He's, he's the guy that has all the receipts on slavery and everything else. He, he's, he's the man in that regard. Um, let me see here. Um, mm, let me, you know, I gotta think on that. I, I, I know that there are a lot of people in academia that I think mm-hmm. could do a lot for the community. Uh, you know, it's just a matter of taking 
that brain power and targeting in the right way. You know, we've, right. we've got critical problems in the, in the community, not just wealth, but every area, you know, from healthcare to everything else, relationships, all that. And I think that 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 massive trillion dollar brain power that exists within black black academia, uh, I would love to see that on a bigger landscape. You know, like I like where Trisha Rose and Cornell West are doing their thing over there. Um, uh, uh, Greg Carr from um, uh, Howard is it Howard? Yeah, that, that's that's doing that thing with um, Karen Hunter. You know, I I think that 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 those individuals are great because we we need that intelligence. You know, we need those people that. Um, are going to maybe at some point be funded by think tanks that just get together and say, okay, let's let's lay out our agenda on what the biggest problems are in our community and let's focus on solving those problems. You know, so one day, you know, and, and we're not that far away from that, but I told Alicia yesterday, I said, you know, Cornell West can't, um, he, he's upset about losing his little situation to Harvard. I said, man, I would love to hire Cornell West. <laughs> and I right. think I can make that work. Like, I, could, I, I don't know what he makes at Harvard, but I was like, I could probably pay him and 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 make it work, you know, like like <laughs> maybe become the black business school, you know, like that that would be pretty cool. See, and that kind of that kind of out of the box thinking, I think, is going to help us move the needle much faster. That you know, being able to think about maybe maybe we could come together, maybe I could pay him, maybe we could find the resources to build a conglomerate of the black intelligentsia that's actually out there and changing lives. Like, so, you know, like uh, obviously the Black Patrol Network has an incredible collection of, of, of black intellectuals in every possible discipline. And one of the things that we're working on is, is spending our intellectual capital in places that will do the most good, the places that we've come from and, and being able to connect people. Like uh, my connection with you, I value very much so because I've learned and continue to learn so much from your your trajectory, your skill sets. You are you are an amazing what I call a scholarist, right? A scholar activist, like someone that's actually that has the intellectual fortitude and chops, right? That can make it and supersede in the academy, and that connection, you know, that action in the community for our people. And I and I just want to say I thank you and I appreciate all that you're doing. Um, and, and just wanted to thank you for, for taking the time here to spend on Dr. Green Speaks. You are an amazing person. And, and, I, and I recommend that all of my listeners go to uh, Boyce TV. Dr. Boyce TV, is that, is that correct? Uh, go because there's so much whether what and you also deal with relationship like you deal with all of the popular topics and and some hard hitting topics and and one of the things that I've also appreciate is that yes you do have opposing opinions like it's not an echo chamber you don't just bring a bunch of people on that are parroting your ideological positionalities your thought process you bring some people that are very interesting and diverse in their perspectives so and and that and that I think also that takes a great deal of confidence and security, right? Because you, you are you and the panelists that you bring on deal with these different perspectives in an in intellectual and critical way. So I recommend that 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 my my listeners take take a quick view and spend some time there and help Dr. Boyce Watkins build the kind of um, uh, media conglomerate that's free to speak truth to power and to help our people. So I just wanted to thank you for sharing your time with me. Um, and and we, we've got to do it again. There's so much more that we can cover that we'll cover on another at another time. But thank you so much for coming, um, Dr. Boyce Watkins. 
Thanks for having me, brother. I appreciate it. And and, and ditto to everything you said. <laughs>